I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk Section 232 and 301 tariffs. We'll talk about AUKUS, and finally, we'll talk about the U.S. and the EU on EVs and more, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Guys, welcome back to our amazing show. I want to start off with ITC Steel and Aluminum. And I take it Tariff Man was wrong. Is this right? Tariff Man was wrong. And I think a victory lap for the trade guys because we've been we predicted this from the beginning. What the ITC was asked to do was to study the effects of the Trump tariffs on steel and aluminum, the 232 tariffs, and also the tariffs on China, the 301 tariffs. So they looked at, at all of them. And what they found, I think, was to the surprise of no economists, that imports went down as a result of the tariffs, that domestic production went up modestly as a result of the tariffs, and that prices went up modestly as a result of the tariffs. We'll get back to that. And that the importers, meaning the U.S. parties, paid the tariffs. So tariff man's claim that the Chinese would pay turned out to be entirely wrong, which is what everybody knew in the first place. But now we've got validation of it. The element that interested me was the price effect. Because, you know, a, a simplistic view would be, well, if you slap on a 25% tariff, the domestic price is going to go up 25%. And it appears that did not happen. The prices went up, but except in semiconductors, actually, where they went up measurably and where imports went substantially down, I think like 73% reduction from China. For the most part, the price increase to the consumer was relatively small. In most cases, uh, less than 1%, despite the tariff, which I think means, if I've got that right, means a couple things. One, that the importers ate the tariff, so it wasn't a good year for them or a good several years for them. But it also means that the tariffs probably were not as inflationary by, the, by themselves, as the business, business community has been arguing. Well, right. Look, I think that there are some things that the ITC was unable to measure because of the duration of the study. One of them is substitution effects. And anytime there are higher prices for a material of some sort, or almost any product, people will look for substitutes. It's why when you get into pure commodities, the traders will always tell you that high prices lead to low prices. Because high prices increase supply of the item, they encourage marginal production, and they increase the likelihood of people finding substitutes. So both those effects tend to dampen price effects in pure commodities. Now, steel is anything but a pure commodity. Same with aluminum and same with many of the products that were subject to 301 tariffs. But the key, the idea, the notion that somehow the exporter, China, was going to pay the cost of the tariff was always preposterous. The final consumer, to the extent any of this is passed on, the final consumer pays the bill. The other thing to take a look at for the walks in our audience who want to read the report, I would also encourage you to take a look at the additional views filed by Commissioner Jason Kearns, who, while he signed the report, therefore, I think, indicating agreement with his conclusions, also pointed out that he thought that the report was incomplete because it does not analyze other effects of the tariffs, 
but beyond the rather narrow ones that the ITC did analyze. But I think the the problem there, of course, is that what people didn't pay a lot of attention to is that the request for this study did not come from the Ways and Means and Finance Committees, the Trade Committees, came from the Appropriations Committee. And the appropriators had some very specific questions to ask, and the ITC answered them. But that did not mean that they did a full-length analysis of, like, it's a substitution effect, as Scott said, or a variety of downstream effects or other things that happened, or they didn't look at the, the alternatives, you know, what would have happened to prices in the industry if there had not been any tariffs. So... You can't call it a flawed study because they did what they were asked to do and they did it well. But you could also argue that it was incomplete in trying to determine, you know, the whole picture. But either way, Tariff Man was wrong. Does the report, though, come as a surprise to stakeholders? Well, it shouldn't. And in general, the narrowness of the questions and the answers, I mean, that's what the ITC's mission was, to answer a set of questions which happened to be narrow. None of them were particularly surprising in the outcome. There are bigger questions that are left unanswered. For instance, national security tariffs on Canadian aluminum. When the the North American aluminum business is deeply integrated, it's a single firm with a single union with operations that happen to be in two countries. And so... And by the way, Canada is a NATO ally. We also had another national security tariffs on NATO allies or products of NATO allies, which was not a part of the questions asked, but seems preposterous on the face and has never not been preposterous. Well, guys, let's move on to AUKUS, which is one of my favorite acronyms. Of course, it stands for Australia, United Kingdom, U.S. It involves a major submarine deal. Guys, tell us what this is. And you know, if you want to listen to more about the security implications of AUKUS, on my other podcast, Truth of the Matter, Dr. Charles Adell, our Australia chair at CSIS, and I have a pretty thorough discussion of it. But guys, what does this mean for trade? We certainly disappointed the French some time ago. They, <laughs> yes, we. Bonjour, we. They were, they were upset some, some time ago when the original agreement uh, was announced, and I think they probably still are, if questioned. But it is an arrangement that has strategic benefits given the alliance that the United States has with the UK and Australia, which is quite close. It's got a number of dimensions which are not yet clear for how this will work, either from a pure international trade standpoint, but it is principally a national security or strategic move. I think there are two, two trade issues. Not to mention, I, we all know this was coming, this is inspired on the Hill, the creation of the AUKUS caucus, which is one of the great think, headlines of all time. The AUKUS caucus. What could be better? It's just the gift that keeps on giving. What can I say? Congress is famous for coming up with acronyms for things. And the CHIPS Act, the UNITE Act, I think we had a RESIST Act at one point. All these things, the letters all stand for something. And here we have, this is just God-given, the AUKUS caucus. Anyway, there are, I think, two trade issues involved. One of them we haven't really touched on here before because it's really strictly defense-related. And that's the United States' use of the ITAR. ITAR stands for International Trade and Arms Regulations. And it is the document that the State Department uses to control weapons and associated elements. Most of our export control discussions here have been about dual-use items, which are controlled by the Commerce Department, and they're called dual-use because they have both civilian and military uses. The ITAR is a list of items that have only military uses. Grenades, you know, jet fighters and parts and components thereof, and nuclear submarines. And the ITAR rules, as you might imagine, are very, very strict. Everything needs a license. Every item needs a license to every country. 
because we're talking about weapons. And so if you're going to enter into an arrangement like this, it poses some challenges for the State Department and for ITAR because you want to have a smooth working relationship with Australia and the UK. And getting a license from the State Department on a defense item can be cumbersome. There's just a huge amount of paperwork involved. More than 20 years ago, first the Clinton administration and then the George W. Bush administration tried to deal with this issue in a, um, by uh, mutual defense treaties, U.S.-U.K., U.S.-Australia, that were intended to ease this process and allow more weapon systems to flow either with broader licenses that would encompass a lot of stuff. So you wouldn't have to get a license for every single part. One by one, you could get a license for the plane, you know, and that would be it. And for a variety of reasons, that never actually got off the ground very successfully. There was a lot of internal resistance to it in the bureaucracy. I remember this at the time, and there was some congressional skepticism about it. We've now come full circle, and we're back about to try to do the same thing. Which makes perfect sense. If you want to try to enhance military cooperation between the countries, you have to facilitate it and you have to make it easy. And then you want to have a licensing process that is smooth and seamless. We don't have that. So ITAR reform is probably going to be next on the list. The other element is that another pillar of the agreement calls for some advanced technology transfer to Australia and the UK. And that's going to need licensing as well. And that's going to need the United States sorting out exactly how much of this high technology, including, I think, quantum computing, they want to share even with our closest allies. Does the Joint Strike Fighter provide a model for this? Because that's a, a high technology product that is a weapons system where there is shared production. That's what prompted the whole debate 24 years ago. How do we make the Joint Strike Fighter simple and operational? So that was the prompt. I think what was done then didn't get over all the humps. I mean, they managed, but it was still very difficult. And I think this exercise now, the intent, I think, or hope, is not to have to go through that again and try to have a process that is more seamless. Guys, I have to ask, like this pillar two, are there any steps that can be taken to improve defense collaboration and the technology transfers that you just talked about, Bill? I think it depends on the parties deciding something that we have talked about before, which is what is important and what is not, and what is important from a security perspective and what is not. And the United States needs to decide what it wants to accomplish with sharing the information. The idea of AUKUS, particularly with respect to Australia, is to help enhance, build up, and make more sophisticated their manufacturing base and their defense industrial base. The argument being that having people in Asia, as they are making advanced equipment and sophisticated equipment in cooperation with us, will enhance both our militaries and will put us collectively in a better position to deal with the challenge that China poses in the region. Doing that requires sharing technology. That's going to make mean the United States has to decide what it wants to give up. Now, it's not giving up in the sense that it's not going to do that anymore. But what it is going to do is share stuff that previously we have had a monopoly on. And that was a difficult decision 20 years ago. It may end up being a difficult decision now. Despite that the UK and Australia, two of our most trusted partners. And part of the five eyes. Right. Well, we'll have to watch that one. It's an interesting issue. Another interesting issue is President Biden's Oval Office pitch on critical minerals. 
Biden and Ursula von der Leyen, in a joint statement released after their meeting last week, said that they intended to immediately begin negotiations on a targeted critical minerals agreement on enabling critical minerals extracted or processed in the in the European Union to count towards requirements for clean vehicles in the Section 30D clean vehicle tax credit of the Inflation Reduction Act. There's been some critique of this. Guys, what's the deal here? The only thing that surprised me about it was they said they were going to start negotiations. I thought they started negotiations two months ago. They've been talking about this for a long time. Secretary Yellen has been talking about it for a long time because it's not just about sharing minerals. It's a device from the EU's point of view that will enable them to qualify for some of our Inflation Reduction Act electric vehicle tax credits. If you recall, the, the EV tax credit depend upon, among other things, your battery critical minerals, A, cannot come from China or sundry other bad guys like North Korea, and must come from the United States or a country with which we have a free trade agreement. Well, that takes care of Canada and Mexico. It takes care of Chile. It actually takes care of Korea on that front. It does not take care of the EU. And so half the credit 3750 is, and that's $3,750, not $37.50. Half the credit is off limits. And so there's been a lot of pressure from the Europeans to fix that. There are different ways that one could fix it. The one that the administration seems to have settled on is, let's do something that we can call a free trade agreement with Europe, and then they'll qualify. That has several flaws, one of which is that I don't know that they'll get away with it. An agreement on critical minerals is I, pretty clearly, I think, not what Congress envisioned when they put this provision into the act. They were thinking FTA in the classic sense, and we don't have one with Europe. If the Treasury Department says a critical minerals agreement qualifies, they'll be sued. Uh, that will tie things up for a couple of years. We'll see what happens. The other interesting thing about it, though, that has me intrigued and caused me to break out this wonderful map that our trusted fellow uh, Emily sent me. And you all know Emily from times when Andrew can't be with us. Emily is the greatest of all trade guys. Yes. It's a map of where critical minerals actually are in the world. And it's a map full of little red triangles and green triangles and yellow circles. And I haven't figured out what they all mean. But one of the things that you can tell from a glance at the map is there aren't very many of them in Europe. And so there is news of a potentially very large lithium deposit in Sweden which has not been exploited yet, uh, or even mapped yet, to know exactly what it's in, what's in it. But it looks from the map like it's not zero in Europe, but there's not that much stuff. So you have to wonder, even if we make this agreement, even if it qualifies as a free trade agreement under the statute, is it really going to make that much difference to the Europeans? Because it seems to me there's not that many minerals there. And for the biggest potential one, in Sweden, it's going to take a long time before that gets to uh, commercial viability. Well, look, Bill commented about his surprise that they were going to start negotiations. You characterized the previous three months as negotiation where and it was actually just whining. So, so I, th- I think we're, we're now to the start of something. But I, Bill, I agree with you. To meet the targets that are being set for electric vehicles, the IEA, which is a pretty reliable source on on energy matters worldwide, indicates we need to open dozens of new mines and dramatically increase production of lithium, copper, nickel, a whole bunch of cobalt, a whole bunch of of metals that is not on, on the doorstep by any means. 
So I don't know if they're serious about this, but that, that, would, that would note some seriousness. I would include that there are Canada, Australia, Chile. We do have partners who are sophisticated miners. I mean, they, they are in the business of resource extraction now, which make for good partners in this kind of project. But in addition, this whole area of, of subsidies uh, for the Green Deal, whether in the United States or Europe, is in some ways a reminder of why we got out of subsidies after the 70s. You know, we were disappointed in what they actually didn't do for the economy. And if we want economic growth and, and want green growth, we've got to find a way to make them mutually productive as activities. Otherwise, we're just we're subsidizing activities that don't generate productivity growth, therefore don't generate real economic growth. So that contributes to stagflation, much as it did in the 70s. And well, the other dirty little secret here is this is dirty. Mining this stuff is dirty. You're going through tons of dirt to extract a relatively small amount of mineral. Then you've got piles of dirt. And then the processing and refining of these things into usable ore is also dirty. I mean, there's reasons why we're not excited about doing it here in the United States, right. because it's an environmental hazard. And people for a long time were perfectly happy to have the Chinese do it. Well, now we're not happy to have the Chinese do it because it means that we're vulnerable. But this comes with environmental consequences that have not yet been factored into this debate. Guys, um, finally today, what discussion on the trade guys would be complete without a discussion of IPEF, digital trade negotiations? What is the current state of play? Current state of play is, as we speak, they are negotiating in Bali. And in particular, the United States has apparently uh, tabled a, an actual text on digital trade, uh, which has not been made public. There are rumors about it. Uh, I spoke with someone who is a clear advisor, which means someone who has access to the materials, but then can't talk about them. And I have to say, he kept his word. He did not talk about them. But the prevailing gossip from those who didn't keep their word is that the text that was tabled was was called USMCA minus. Take what was in the USMCA agreement on this subject, and it will be less than that, at least what was tabled. We'll see where, where they end up. The reason, I think, is because of pressure, which has been in the background, but has now become public as of the last few days from the people that are basically the Democratic left to whom I think we've outsourced a lot of our policy. And they have begun to express concern publicly that uh, we have to be careful in these agreements not to reach binding agreements that will tie Congress's hands. They point out on areas like privacy, competition policy, content moderation. We don't have a national policy. The EU does. China does. Lots of countries do. The United States does not. Um, and the progressive party, part of the Democratic Party, is concerned that reaching an IPEF agreement on those subjects might tie Congress's hands and make it impossible for Congress to enact a policy on these subjects. Now, you have to break through the code on that. What they're really saying is it might make it hard for Congress to enact the policy that we want them to enact, because what they're afraid of is that the big multinational companies, big tech in the vocabulary of today will get to the administration and persuade the administration to agree to commitments that the left doesn't want to see. Personally, I think the chances of that happening are very low in this administration, but they're very worried about it and argue that all you, the best that you can do in IPEF is a best practices agreement where we all try hard to do good things, but we're not committed to doing good things. 
So the message this week is the text has been tabled, discussions are going on, and don't expect too much. Well, look, this is uh, there's some wonderful ironies here. First, it appears that the administration's strategy to not deal with the Congress and not negotiate anything of substance in terms of market access in the Indo-Pacific has backfired because the concerns that are being raised would have been addressed in congressional authority, but nobody asked. So even the small amount of something that that, that looks like a trade liberalization and, and quacks like a trade liberalization can't go forward. Uh, the second irony is one of the critics is uh, Representative Schakowsky, well-known progressive from Illinois, and last seen for or, the, or Chairman Neal and the Speaker's Committee for USMCA, who helped achieve the final outcome that got massive democratic support for USMCA. Now what's tabled is USMCA minus, and she's upset. So it's an interesting moment. I'm not sure what to make of it. We'll we'll learn more as we get to more facts. But I think engaging the Congress is something that you're going to want to do sooner or later. It looks like we've we've opted for later, but it's not making a good show now. Well, the other irony, well, I think it's an irony, that kind of depresses me, is that the USMCA is being dinged. These, These particular provisions are being dinged, in particular, the content liability issue, because the USMCA language apparently reflects the Section 230, Section 230 language in U.S. law, which the left doesn't like because it lets the big platforms off the hook as far as liability is concerned for what's posted and it puts the liability on, on the poster and not on the, on the platform. The irony of that is that Congress has, for 30 years at least, consistently told administrations of both parties what you should try to do in trade agreements is to get into the trade agreement what U.S. law already is. Correct. That's what we negotiate for. Right. Let's get the other countries to agree to that and everything's fine. And I give Lighthizer credit on USMCA when it comes to digital content. That's exactly what he did. He did exactly what Congress told him to do. He got U.S. language into the agreement. And now the people that never liked that language in the first place, and you know they want to change it and they want Congress to change it, Fine, you know, they should go to Congress and try to change it. So so far in the last 20 years, they haven't had the votes to do that. And now while they're complaining that the United States is going to enshrine that language via the back door of a trade agreement, I think what they would prefer to do is to enshrine other language through the back door of a trade agreement. So I'm a little bit cranky about this. I feel kind of sorry, and I don't usually feel sorry for Ambassador Lighthizer, but I do in this case because he did what Congress told him to do, and he did it faithfully, and he deserves credit for that. And now we have some people coming in and saying, well, he shouldn't have done that because we don't like that. Well, the answer to that is go back to Congress uh, and get them to change it. This is why trade is not just a profession. It's a hobby. So we always find something to entertain ourselves with. Well, you know, the beautiful thing is, guys, is today we've gotten through all the acronyms. ITAR, IPEF, USMACA. AUKUS. I mean, this has been a real, you know, joyful acronym day. And an AUKUS caucus. AUKUS caucus. What do you know? There aren't enough letters in the alphabet to accommodate all these things, I don't think. There are not. Well, until next time, when we talk about more acronyms, it's been great being with you as always. All right. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. 
We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.